I don't think data science is going away for a long time. I think it's just reached more of a steady state kind of growth. And so if you're an applicant that's actually interested in getting a job, building out one of these like GPT apps for a company, let's say Expedia or Airbnb or some job posting that you already see, maybe a startup as well, mm -hmm. and just kind of like demoing it to them and sending it to them as part of your application, I think is a great win. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today, we have Jay Feng. Jay is the CEO of Interview Query, a service that helps data scientists get jobs. Previously, he works as a data scientist at companies like Nextdoor and Monster. Today, we're going to talk about data science interview trends in 2024. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, so... Now there's another round of tech layoffs just oh, yeah. in January of 2024. Is this still a good time to get into data science? What's the supply and demand for data science roles? Yeah, so it is not a great time to get into data <laughs> science, I would say. I think last year was the first year we looked at the data and we actually saw the trend of data science jobs um, plummeting compared mm -hmm. to actual other jobs. So. We're looking at data analytic jobs. We're looking at data engineering jobs. Both of those were actually also not doing great, but there was this divergence where I think the data science role itself was getting split off as companies kind of learned about how to label these data science jobs now. Before, they would put a role of data scientists. It'd be machine learning engineer. It could be data engineer 90% of the time. Now it seems like they've actually understood what these roles are around data science versus everything else. But also there's that effort of also cutting costs, I think, around because data scientists are expected to be paid more mm -hmm. compared to data analysts as well. So definitely in 2024, though, we've seen some resurgence in the job market, okay. but it's still hard to get a job, I feel, right now. Yeah. So what should we do then? <laughs> what should we do? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think... Data science is a good field. It's like AI engineering is blowing up. And so it's not like data is actually bad. I think it's more like the overall market is bad. And so because data science is in tech mm -hmm. and it's part of the tech trend, then it's kind of going that same wave, right? But I have always been pushing people to kind of look at data engineering a little bit more, look mm -hmm. at AI a little bit more on the engineering side. Yeah. Because I feel like we're getting back to that point where there's not this massive like demand for tech anymore where it was almost like artificially inflated right two years ago three yeah, years ago during the pandemic during the pandemic right they're overhired and that created this baseline of just a bunch of candidates that maybe weren't that qualified or potentially were overhired at a company where they really didn't need it and now that we're actually cutting back and the companies are looking at that bottom line it's going to be a lot more important for them to find quality candidates and figuring out like how much they actually need in terms of data science and engineering support. So you're saying there might be more demand for machine learning engineers, AI engineers, and maybe flat for, say, data science, analytics focused when the job role is to support business making better decisions. Are those roles or you don't see like a higher increase in demand? Yeah, I just feel like we had that artificial demand, that kind of just that overhiring. Mm. So it's kind of like with, if everyone looks at their stock market portfolio, they see this like huge bump, right, at the end of 2020 and 2021, or yeah. at least I hope most people did because of all those growth startups. Mm -hmm. And then they saw it kind of flatten in 2022 and go down in 2023, and now it's kind of resurging back up. It's kind of like how that is, but modeled across everything, including these jobs and also for the demand of data science, because it follows that natural curve across employment for the tech industry as well. Like yeah. People were really hot on it because that was just what you did. You just hired a bunch of data scientists, mm -hmm. hired a software engineers. Now I feel like it's just much more methodical about like, why do we need this person to come in? There's no more like trophy data science hiring, yeah. anymore, right? That is now a luxury that companies have. Mm -hmm. So it's not about like just creating a data science role and hiring someone for it and not understanding what they're going to do. It's like they really have to have that business requirement and that need for them to have a data scientist for them to actually justify bringing one on now. Yeah, I think there are two topics we can 
talk about. One is, for example, I still want to be a data scientist. There are still needs for data scientists, right? And I want to stay in this analytics role or data science generalist. What's my path in the future? And another question is, I'm not very specific in the preference of the work I do. Maybe I do want to transition to machine learning or AI. What's my path? Maybe let's start with the first one. If I still want to look for data science roles, what does the market like look like for me, and how do I prepare for the interviews in 2024? Yeah, so I feel like there's two really like important parts of this, in which like the job search and getting a job is、uh, basically segued into actually getting the interview and finding that job or finding the role you want, and then、mm-hmm. going through the process of applying to a lot of jobs and getting that interview. And then the second half that at least the company that I founded specializes in interview query, which focuses on actually getting you the job and giving you an offer after you get that first interview. Right? Yeah. Both are actually really difficult, but I would say everyone focused a lot more on the interview part a few years ago when getting an interview wasn't that hard because they were trying to hire so much. And then it was about all right, how do I maximize compensation by doing really well、mm. in this interview and then getting the top of the band and negotiating and all this stuff, right? And then now it's like everyone is focusing on this first part, which is just like, how do I even just get someone like a recruiter to call me back at this point when it's so competitive? Yeah. And so, I think the main advice that I tell everyone is that you have to think about it from a funnel perspective. My friend Jeff kind of describes this in one of his blog posts, where when you talk about how many jobs can you apply to, is kind of the top of funnel. Right, and at the very end,、uh, you can work backwards from this by first thinking about like, all right, how many offers do you want? Okay, you want at least one, right? What are your conversion rates towards like actually how many interviews need to go on before you get an offer? Figure that out. Let's say you need to go on five interviews, and then how many jobs do you need to apply to to actually get those five interviews? And in this day and age, I think if you're a new grad or you're someone who's breaking into data science, that's literally maybe one hundred, two hundred jobs for every interview that you get. If you're a senior data scientist, it's probably going to be closer to maybe twenty to thirty every jobs of those twenty、um, to thirty jobs that you have to apply to to actually get an interview back. Now, I actually saw this stat today from the Pragmatic Engineer, and he basically detailed this startup in Arkansas, and they're hiring for three engineering positions. One was an intern position, one was like a regular engineering position, and then one was like a senior engineering. Position that required, let's say, five to ten years of experience. So for the intern application, or the intern position, after two months, they got a thousand applicants.、Mm-hmm. All right, almost a thousand applicants. Yeah. For the regular engineering one, they got five hundred applicants, and then for the senior engineering one, I believe they got seventy-five to a hundred applicants. Now here's the thing, right? This is a company or startup based out of Arkansas. It's hybrid. It's not even remote only. It's、yeah. hybrid. You have to come into the office like three days a week, and it's already gone a thousand intern applications, right?、Yeah. So you're talking about all these people that are. I guess some of them probably don't know that it's only hybrid, but so many people are now kind of like competing for this just for a job that is not in, a, I would say, a top ten place to live by any major consensus. Even though I'm sure Arkansas is great, it's kind of competitive out there, and so really like cementing. The way of figuring out and just being realistic with like your job applications, I think, is one thing. But after you do that, it's really about just making those micro adjustments on like your resume, on that interview process, finding ways to kind of stand out, creating portfolio projects, doing all these different things that kind of give you that slight edge to kind of make sure you get that first interview, so that you can do the rest of the process of actually going on the interview and actually acing it and stuff too. Yeah. So you mentioned creating portfolio project. What are some other things that can help candidates stand out? I feel like the one thing that people don't do that I would love to see more of is actually just building out a lot of AI projects now, especially because it's so easy to build AI、mm-hmm. projects around like a company that they want to apply to, right?、Yeah. Because all these companies. They want to build out like AI into their products, but they don't exactly know how, or they、mm. don't exactly have the resources to do so. Yeah. So these are kind of projects that like an intern or some kind of like extra product team would be doing, but it's just not like a number one business priority anyway. And so if you're an applicant that's actually interested in 
getting a job, building out one of these like GPT apps for a company, let's say Expedia or Airbnb, maybe a startup as well, Mm -hmm. and just kind of like demoing it to them and sending it to them as part of your application, I think is a great win. I think it's just so easy to do right now. One, it's hella fun. I'm sure you've built maybe one or two, but you use ChatGPT one to build the actual app using GPT. That's already fun. And then two, it can do most of the coding legwork for you. And I guess maybe because I'm more senior now and I've actually already know how to code that all I have to do is kind of just verify that the code is running and that it's correct and such. But I would say it makes just the whole process really fun and just makes the effort of actually deploying a project and making it live much easier as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't think a lot of people are doing this. I don't know why. I think maybe there's this high barrier of entry or I just haven't seen that many potentially. But I do think this would give you a really good kind of you know, branding around yourself as also being like cutting edge and keeping up with the times and learning new skills at the same time, as well as doing coding and data science projects. Yeah. So for example, I use AI to create some automated real-time dashboard for Expedia booking. And then how do I use that to get recruiters' attention? Do I just send a DM to them, hey, I built this. Do I post on LinkedIn? What is the best way to leverage this? Yeah, so I think the best way is always inbound. So obviously posting on LinkedIn or Hacker News first is probably the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. Even if you do DM like a recruiter, the project as well, uh, a lot of it comes around the messaging, right? You can't just come out and say, hey, I built this dashboard, check it out, right? You really have to work on kind of how you're going to market what you've done to the wider audience. And this comes really backwards to people because most people don't think about marketing when they are engineering or technically focused, but... I feel like it applied to my entire career too. I was always having to market my projects internally at companies as well for me to actually gain all the like attention and actually progress in my career. So it's a valuable skill to learn. And I think the best way to do so is to kind of craft a story around the project, kind of like why you decided to do it, right? What the problem was, kind of solve that problem, showcase how you solved it, and just make it like a fun experience for anyone who's trying it out, right? And mm-hmm. Generally, I would also say make it consumer facing, right? So that anyone can try it out as well. But yeah, like for me, like in terms of thinking about these ideas, the other day I actually created this San Francisco like fog calculator for different areas of the city because I wanted to know, depending on which neighborhood I moved in, like how much (laughs) fog there was going to be at different times of the day. Yeah. And I did it completely with the ChatGPT app store. Mm -hmm. So like all you had to do was enter in some coordinates and then it would match the coordinates with the data set that I found online with like different fog levels for different times of the year and then produce like a heat map. And it's very simple and it's very like engaging. And yeah. if I posted that on our San Francisco, they'd all be like, oh, this is super interesting. I can use this GPT now. Just enter in your house coordinates, figure out what your fog graph looks like. Right. So stuff like that is just like fun and it gets attention. And that's what you want. You just want more eyeballs on your projects. And then obviously you can also say that you're looking for a job and you'll probably get a lot of engagement for something like that. So, Yeah, that's a great idea. If you don't know what to build something for yourself. Yes, always. I, I think every single project I've done, I've built it for myself to start because it's the most fun and it's what you're actually going to pursue and it's your own interests, right? And you're less likely to give up on it if it's also for yourself because I think also the biggest problem is that most people give up on these projects mm-hmm. uh, because projects are hard to complete in general, right? Like you start a bunch of things, it's very hard to ever see something all the way through. So always focus on the stuff that you're most interested in because that's the one that's actually going to get done. And that's the one that you'll actually want to promote and actually put out there. Because at the end of the day, what actually matters is shipping it, right? Yeah. If you don't ship it, then it doesn't really do anything for your career or Mm -hmm. anything else. Yeah. So basically the uh, supply is high. There's a lot of competition create fun projects to build your personal brand to make it easier for recruiters to find you. And let's say you got your first interview. Now, in the early of 2024, what are some trends on the technical side that you observe that's different from, say, last year, a couple of years back? Maybe we can talk about analytics interviews and also ML interviews. Yeah, so... I would say that 
The trends overall haven't changed too much, I would say. The biggest ones were almost always around actually the hiring process where, you know, due to COVID, they would, instead of maybe having one on-site interview, they'd space it out over time. Yeah. But I would say going forward, the other kind of standardization around like the topics that are asked in the interviews, like understanding that for data analytics, it's going to be like SQL and case study type questions or stats questions. And then for machine learning roles, it's going to be way more like system design focused and leak code and some case studies there as well. Like that standardization is actually becoming more pronounced and it's actually, it's becoming more actually, yeah, standardized essentially. And so that's actually a good thing I would say, because before you could join like a startup and do an interview there, right? And the interview wouldn't be standardized at all, right? Because the person wouldn't understand what kind of role they were hiring for. It'd be like an engineer that, you know, Googled data science interview questions and then took two off the list and asked them basically. Now it seems like everyone is understanding that process. So that's actually a good thing in which we're seeing that, okay, we know what to hire for this role because, and we know which questions actually matter. So I think that is in itself actually a pretty interesting trend. The other thing I've seen also is just generally, I don't think that just doing a bunch of lead code problems is going to differentiate your, yourself now, especially mm-hmm. because lead code uh, has become so ubiquitous across the board. Yeah. Um, same for just if you're using interview query or some other case study prep platform just getting good at that is not going to be the only thing uh, that will be able to stand you out right and so you have to find new ways to get alpha i think one of them that's like really underserved is just being more charismatic in the interview process and being a better hang Mm -hmm. and i feel like people don't really do that right now because after covid it was obviously there's some aspects of just like social integration but having both skills of which being like a team player and someone who can do the technical side and also communicate results and be effective at their job. Like all that stuff is kind of boiling down to behavioral interview questions and the general interviewer sense of who you are. And I think that this thing is going to be more impactful, especially when competition gets more fierce because people do like the return to office as that's actually happening. They're going to want to actually work with people that they like and they want to be around as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Do you have data points on that? For example, this person (laughs) have this barometer of charisma higher and then they got hired. Like, how do you get this intuition? I mean, it makes sense, but do you have data to support this? No, I don't have any data to support (laughs) this. I also don't know how to measure anyone's charisma levels. (laughs) Okay, when you hire people, how do you decide, do I want to work with this person? Are they technical enough or... As a hiring manager. I mean, so there's also, there's the de facto baseline is just being able to explain yourself when you're communicating technical Mm -hmm. concepts. But I think it's the intricacies around the interview, the before and the after, and also just some of the small talk that really does kind of give that first impression. Malcolm Gladwell had that book, right? What was it called? Blink about the first two seconds or whatever is enough Mm -hmm. to decide their opinion of you. And I think it's so true for interviews and, but no one really thinks about that now because they're too busy thinking about like, oh, did I leak code problems to like satisfy this condition, right? When actually you needed that like social leak code like step of just going through a lot of interviews to actually where you feel comfortable and not feel nervous when you're like talking to people and like stuttering over your words and then not preparing, basically talking about yourself and be able to talk about yourself as like an interesting person as well. And Yeah, I don't know. I think that's something that's just underserved right now. And I have no data to support my conclusions, (laughs) but I feel like that was how people got hired back in the day. And then we shifted to leak code. Before leak code, software engineers, I guess they probably asked a variant of leak code, but they asked a lot of past project questions, right? Because they didn't have a question bank. And now we're getting to this point where we're reverting back to it because now it's ubiquitous. Everyone has seen every leak code problem known. Potentially, if you're an engineer or a data scientist, And so now we're going back to, all right, well, we see that you can do this, traverse this binary tree very quickly, but Mm -hmm. what about when it comes to dealing with your teammates who maybe messed up over here and you need to manage an intern now and you need to deliver this thing on time to the executive, what are you going to say to them, right? And I just feel like that is going to matter a lot more or at least will be something that people will consider in the interview process for sure. Yeah, How do we improve 
this type of soft skills, I guess. I, I can think of, for example, you can record yourself, do some mock interviews with your friends, and then watch your recording. It's always painful to watch yourself, but you learn so much from it. Even when I watch my podcast recordings, sometimes <laughs> I cringe. Why did I say so many filler words? It's just little things like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I remember that, too, when I was first doing YouTube. I was like, why am I looking at the ground all the time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now I do think... There are actually some good courses now around how you present yourself. So, well, one, there's like stuff like Toastmasters, if you've ever done that, like public speaking. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's like a good old kind of course slash group that you can always attend and try out. But I do think, yeah, what you said, like recording yourself, doing public speaking, just kind of talking on camera, even probably filming TikTok videos. Yeah. Probably going to help out with that presentation side. And then in terms of the actual like social lubrication skills, that stuff, there are actually courses around that too in terms of just how to get better at socializing and such. At least from what I see from the data around, or sorry, not the data, but the forums that I see around Blind and Reddit, these, this is an underserved thing because people have kind of weird interactions on these online sites that I feel don't really translate in person as well too. Yeah. So, yeah, there's definitely ways to um, I watched this YouTube channel called Charisma on Command that I really like. Mm-hmm where they like deconstruct different people's charisma and it's usually a bunch of (laughs) actors and celebrities and they show you like why someone is really good at this one type of charismatic kind of personality they'll have like very gregarious funny person like the high energy person Mm -hmm. but they'll also have the quiet like type that exudes a lot of respect right and is also charismatic through their conviction in some sort of degree or how they present themselves and these are two like very different kinds of people but you respect them and like them equally and you want to be around them more equally and so that in itself is i think a really interesting skill and a couple of really interesting youtube rabbit holes for you to go down yeah so if two data scientists have very similar technical skills and the ones that's more quote-unquote likable or in your words more specifically able to explain concepts in a more approachable way this person might be more hireable yeah for sure and it's just not even that too it's like you just mentioned it right being more approachable too right because i think some data scientists that i've interacted with at least have this kind of this kind of aura where yeah, yeah there's an ego right like they just keep on talking yeah. And they keep on talking mm-hmm. about this and they go down this rabbit hole. And I'm just like, stop talking. Like secretly in my head, I'm like, just shut up right now. I can't, <laughs> I can't like, deal with this anymore. Yeah. You need to get, let me get my point in. Mm-hmm. And so there's just kind of aspects around that where I definitely think are going to be so much more important because the data science role is also very like, very much like social and about communicating and gathering feedback and getting people to come together to see your point of view. Like you can't just like, point at a graph and be like all right that's the way we're doing it see the data says so right yeah nowadays you kind of have to get buy-in on that too and so that requires you to actually go to people and get them to see your story and understand what you're trying to say and actually be bought into like that like what the data is telling them as well yeah I remember in my previous team Amazon my manager would let us socialize our ideas so basically talk about your ideas your proposals based on your analysis to stakeholders teams and you don't have to talk to a director maybe you can talk to an engineer or a product manager just drip your ideas slowly gather feedback and uh, see how um, receptive they are so this type of socializing is also what data science need to do in another way is almost like playing politics but not in a negative way <laughs> what is politics I and mean, politics is just basically try to see if you can get more people on your side yes yeah. yeah exactly and they probably your manager probably sees like the data scientists just like getting feedback in real time mm-hmm. from the models while you're at your computer right and yeah. if you're trained to get that feedback like literally the data science job is build the model get some feedback make it better right but then you don't actually train that like in-person model of going to people and being like, hey, look, I just built this model. Just why don't you use it? Right. And then they're like, oh, actually, no, it's like not. Maybe there's we're missing this parameter or it's like really bulky because if, if we have to use the internal web tool or something like that. And so 
I think it's a good skill. I mean, I think that was a good idea from your manager's point of view. It's give the data scientists more reasons to kind of socialize their ideas and understand the feedback mechanisms in real life for how you actually get buy-in at bigger corporations, right? Not just by assuming that everything that you're doing, you know, is accurate. You still have to convey that to other people. So yeah. It's very interesting. I think one way for hiring managers to assess this type of skill is to see whether candidates asking clarifying questions or try to talk about their own thought process and also see if they have the awareness to recognize some assumptions in the questions and then ask interviewer more questions. Do you feel there are some other ways for candidates to show this critical, whether it's critical thinking or teamwork collaborative skills? Yeah, the teamwork collaboration ones are really hard. And I don't even think companies have gone to the point where they can figure out like a way to really determine that answer or like the skill of that answer, except for asking about past experience. Like the clarifying questions thing is actually like just a big step on its own. Like you'd be surprised by how many like mock interviews, at least that I've done, where the candidate just jumps in. Yeah. And they just assume like specifically something in their head that they can't communicate towards the interviewer. And then the interviewer has some other assumption, right, for that context, especially if you're working at a startup, right? If I'm interviewing a role for data scientists and I am at a startup with, let's say, 10 people, then I have so many specific assumptions here that the candidate does not know at all, right? Because they don't know that much about my company or the past problems I solved. If you're talking about something like Facebook or Google, where it's like, you have all these assumptions of like big company problems, big company scale, big company constraints. That's way different. Mm -hmm. But if I'm talking about, let's say, yeah, just some random startup, then they've probably tried like a thousand things, thrown them at the wall and gotten some results back. And so you got to probe and kind of ask them about what happened in the past for you to actually make an answer that sounds good enough for that interviewer to be like, all right, I didn't actually think about that. Because most of the time they're pulling from a case study, basically. And they're just, they're not pulling from something online they're just basically working on a problem at the startup and they're just like all right you new interviewer give me a new way to think about this problem that i'm trying to work on right now essentially and so definitely probing for assumptions is probably the best way i'd say that most candidates can get a leg up there too additionally i think the last point i'll add on this is that just having a good framework for thinking about it is the best way to kind of move forward in terms of approaching all these problems similarly and not having to always kind of spend a lot of time pausing and constructing every single problem the same, a different way. So for us, I think for every kind of case study question, they all follow this path of basically running the clarifying questions, making some assumptions, giving your top three kind of like hypotheses or like reasonings for what you think is going on, and then showcasing how you'd validate those hypotheses with some sort of work that you would do. So like you say, oh, okay, I dig into this data. And basically, if this metric is X, then that means that this would be correct or this would not be correct. And so we do teach that actually on interview query because I feel like this literally applies to every single one of the data science problems. And most people just need like that kind of framework there so that you don't have to invent something every single time differently. Because these things are constrained, right? There's 30 minutes every single time. It's very specific across the time constraints and kind of the problem constraints. And so just having that there is really effective for just being able to think on the spot, especially when you're giving new cases. What are some other mistakes people make during interviews? Just like not having their mic set up properly sometimes. Oh, they're in Zoom? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, just not being able, having a bad internet connection. Just honestly, it's kind of sad if you have like IT connections. Yeah. But like I remember during initially during COVID, like that was probably 10% of people. And then you want to be able to hear what they're saying. And then a lot of people are too um, nice to ask you to fix it or to say that they can't understand you. Mm -hmm. And they just write it off as you not like being able to do it correctly. Right? Oh. Like I've heard of this multiple times. Yeah. The other common mistakes are also just rambling and throwing out ideas and not thinking about structure of your answer. So most things have to have a beginning, middle, and end. And if you just keep on thinking of new ideas as you're talking, then you don't really have a cohesive argument, right? You're just kind of going on and on. And I think I'm personally liable for doing this a lot of the times. And I think this happens a lot during meetings too, 
when you're talking to other teammates and such, but it's really important to present yourself in this really structured, strat- strategic kind of way, I, I would say. Yeah, and it's okay to pause a few seconds to think about that frame. When I was interviewing, I think the first few interviews I ever had in my career, I felt so anxious. So you feel you have to say something, and you just keep talking, but that doesn't <laughs> really make sense. I think later you develop the confidence. It's okay to pause and speak slow yeah. so you can have this logic around your answer. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like that scene from The Office where, I don't know if you watch it, where Michael just keeps on saying, never, ever, actually, under any circumstances, ever. <laughs> he just keeps on going. It's very easy to do that. And I even think that because we listen to podcasts sometimes at 1.25x speed, I just think that everyone talks super fast. <laughs> and then I jump on a podcast myself and then I'll just go and I'll just start talking or I'll start talking or rumbling over my words and stuff. But yeah, it's totally okay to speak slowly. It's totally okay to pause. I actually think everyone should just pause for two minutes before they answer any kind of question two in minutes setting yeah that's a lot it is a long time but you could say you could take two minutes because you have yeah. 45 minutes and so right. if you take at least two minutes to chill out and then make the rest of the 95 percent of the time you're speaking really good then i think that's good you can't do two minutes though five times in an interview though because i've had okay. one not, not every question yeah not yeah. every question yeah you can't just get a question and be like give me two minutes and then right. and then you say one word back and all right <laughs> Well, what about this? Oh, two more minutes. Yeah, that's not going to happen. That was kind of weird. But if you just do two minutes after the first initial case question or the first coding question, I think that's fine. And just definitely take some time to structure it out. I know on Interview Query on your website, you have a lot of blog posts and analysis analyzing the recent trend. It seems like there are not a lot of changes in the technical aspect as you observe, for example, how often do you update your question prep bank or do you hear new feedback from your customers got offers recently? Yeah, so we do actually do a lot of success story interviews and then we try to incentivize people to tell us about the interview experiences they have with with like gift cards or free access and such as well. So if you guys ever go on an interview, let us know and we'll try to get you access to the interview query or something. But the reason why we do that is because we want up-to-date info on everything, like you said. And that's the main challenge for us is just being able to continuously make sure that uh, everything that we're serving is uh, basically what the employers actually want. I think some of the companies, like all the FANG companies or whatever they're called now, basically have their structure and they want to keep to it because they have so much data now on basically what works mm. and what doesn't work. It's almost hard to change the process because then you get less data on that feedback horizon, right? They're basically trying to get to this point where they have these set of questions and the way that you're basically scaled in terms of how well you, you answer them is now almost on a feedback horizon of like the first 90 days on the job of how you perform, right? They literally have it down to a brass tacks of, okay, we're going to ask this case study question. If they answer it in this way, according to our rubric, then that means they've done a good enough job and that they will most likely succeed on this department of our company. That's, I think, how well organized, I think, uh, a lot of these top tech companies are at this point. The startups, though, I think are a little bit different. And that's where we're also kind of working on, like, how do we update our curriculum as it comes to this new advent of, like, AI? work right and I don't think a lot of companies have figured this out I think it's really hard for people to understand and kind of how to integrate the new technologies into the actual interview process and so right now if you're looking for an AI related job too it's almost always going to be be based on just your past experience and you're probably just going to have a conversation with someone and they're just going to litmus test you on knowledge and just your past projects and how deeply you were actually embedded in terms of doing this these projects to really understand if you have competency in this field around AI uh, and engineering or deploying AI applications. So, yeah. yeah. Do you feel there's more focus on putting models in production now compared to, say, two, three years ago? I definitely think that they have systematized those processes for interview questions. Now there is a whole, there's actually been multiple people that have come out with ML system design books 
right in general for the interview and there's also just a lot of tech companies that have figured out the standard way of how they're actually implementing these models and most people then kind of know how to replicate those at work as well so that kind of knowledge has now been um, widely spread enough where you can see it across the board for even expecting people to have these interview questions and how to answer them now if that's what they're expected to do in the job, I think it's more of a function of just being more competitive now, where before maybe a data scientist didn't have to know how to do that, but now they'd prefer to have, if it's a data scientist with the exact same experience, skill set, but one of them just knows how to deploy their own models in production, oh, perfect, now we don't have to hire an ML engineer on top of a data scientist, right? This guy can do it all, or this girl can do it all, right? Or, so essentially, that's kind of how I think it's progressing on that front now. Yeah. And what is the biggest difference between product data science versus ML engineering job interviews? So for example, what are some topics usually are not asked during ML E interviews, but are asked in like analytics, product DS interviews? Yeah, like all the product DS interviews, I think follow this similar pattern where they have this case study around not just like solving SQL problems or maybe leak code problems. So I think, well, I'll take a step back, but the fundamentally one of the most common differences are that the product analytics ones deal with like more SQL, more like data manipulation, whereas the ML engineering ones deal with just pure leak code style problems. Mm -hmm. But going even deeper than that, I think on the product data science side, they're asking you to almost formulate some of those questions yourselves a lot yeah. of times, right? They're asking you basically, they're giving you the lay of the land. They're like, all right, we have these tables or maybe just think of a schema on your own and we have this problem, right? Like we're seeing this metric is going down. How would you investigate into it? Create your own tables, run your own queries now to figure it out. And so that in itself is, it's not just about understanding what to solve here it's about understanding how to diagnose it yourself and how to actually come up with what question to ask here and i saw that also for facebook interviews right they'll basically give you a schema and they'll be like all right we have these two tables come up with your own metric for determining how to measure the results of how good our searches are essentially so that's an example question right i just made that up on the spot so you're the one coming up with the metric and then once you actually give them the metric the interviewer will then decide okay this is a good metric or oh, this guy still said the totally wrong answer so we're not going to continue but let's say that you actually do give a good metric then they're going to be like all right well that's a good metric now how would you write a query to actually find that and so if you think about it in this 45 minute exercise they've basically giving you just like a problem that you'd have to do anyway no one's going to tell you what to do they're not going to be like all right you got to do these 10 specific queries right for you to finish your work day it's going to be like well all right well we have business priorities, right? And now you have to dig in on your own to figure out how to like help out with those business priorities and what metrics you need to move and which ones matter the most and which ones don't matter the most. And so that's kind of how they gauge that general interest. And then on the ML engineering side, I think it's just so much more focused on leak code and that system design aspect. I don't have as much personal experience with it, but from what the members on interview query are saying, it's almost like you're interviewing for a software engineering role but you just have to have that kind of ML experience specifically, right? And this means just understanding generally how the machine learning models work, generally how to, what kind of performance indicators or kind of like requirements there are for machine learning specifically versus something like DevOps. But yeah, it's kind of just more like having that like domain expertise while having the engineering background and knowledge. Yeah, I know a lot of data scientists or product-focused data scientists that want to get into machine learning or AI. I've also seen some ML engineer. they are tired of the day-to-day -day work of fine-tuning models, fixing bugs. They want to have more business impact. They're moving to product analytics. Uh, have you seen people move from one data science role to another and from your customers and then if so what's your advice for them yeah i've seen some people move over and it's usually something that i feel like is always company dependent more so than actual kind of career specific 
And so the way that I mentioned that is that they'll have a bad experience at one company, mm-hmm. like doing analytics, and they'll think that analytics is bad everywhere. Yeah. And they'll be like, okay, I want to do machine learning engineering now, right? Or it'll be vice versa. But I haven't heard of the actual end results. I think it's I think it's just like any other kind of career switch, to be honest. I think it's hard to do. But it's much easier if you work at a company that's flexible enough to just internally transfer you anyway yeah. and give you that mentorship that's needed to actually kind of work on those kinds of problems. A lot of companies do allow you to do that. Even if you can't specifically transfer to a new manager, you can still collaborate with the team more closely and gain all that knowledge and work on projects that are related, especially if it's going from somewhere where, let's say it's like a higher value kind of role that they need to fill. So I would say if you're going from like data analytics, let's say, where you're a data analyst and you're trying to go into machine learning engineering and you work with the machine learning team, they'd be very ecstatic, I think, to bring on like a data analytics person to work on those kinds of problems because generally machine learning engineers can make almost double than what a data analyst does. And so I think just being able to work at companies that allow you to do that is the best way. Most of the time that's startups, but it could change. And I know there's internal transfers at these other kinds of companies as well. Yeah, I agree. The best way to transition to a different role is to do that internally because you already have that trust. You have the proven record of your previous work. A lot of people get into another career, for example, just use the same example of data analyst to I'm an engineer because you make more money. And I think there are some people they don't really care what they do specifically. They're very driven. Doesn't matter what they do, they can do well, they can enjoy it. And there are some other people, they get into a higher paid job and then realize, oh, I actually don't like it. And they apply for this role because everyone else wants to get it so for people who are choosing which track in data science or ml is good for them what's your advice it's a good question i feel like the best advice that i try to give is completely context dependent upon my life so i tell people that they should just ignore the money right? Which one would they like to do on a day-to-day basis and feel good about going to work, right? I think I heard the saying of which job are you tap dancing while you're going to work to, right? And I think it's a good litmus test for yourself, right? Uh So that you don't have to think about the money aspect there, but that might just be me um, because my own career is about using that as a methodology for figuring out what I was going to work on next. Everyone is so different, though. I have talked to people that are completely focused on the money aspect of it, and them burning out is not a any cause for concern. It's just more about reaching that higher and higher level of TC. And yeah. I applaud them, but I can't do that myself, I would say. So which data science role you worked on, you like tap dance to every day? <laughs> well, eventually I, I switched <laughs> enough times to realize that I couldn't tap dance to work anymore <laughs> unless I was staying at home. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually did try all of them, to be honest. Mm-hmm. My first job was in data analytics and or marketing analytics, but I wasn't really doing that much work. And I moved to a startup where I had to do everything from data analytics to data engineering to uh, machine learning to basically just core engineering work. I realized I didn't like doing core engineering work and did uh, product analytics after that. Realized that I couldn't have enough sway at that kind of company to really make product analytics work for me and then ended up quitting and doing interview query where now I'm forced to do all of the jobs again outside of data analytics and data science, by the way. But I would say that it's each one has their own caveats and down, upsides and downsides. I would say it's really hard to get good at data analytics unless you have kind of a very ambitious kind of career trajectory on your own, right? Because if you think about it, so much of it is about communicating insights, getting buy-in, kind of doing what we were talking about before yeah. with leadership. And if you just don't have... I remember being in these like meetings with the CEO and then when she would ask me a question... I would like stumble and it'd feel like a spotlight was on me and it was like really hard at that point in my career. And it's kind of just one of those things that you realize over time that 
but you should have approached it a different way or not really kind of thought about what she needed, what the CEO needed versus what my needs were at the same time. And I think those kind of, those kind of lessons just kind of come with time there. Yeah, I can resonate with that. Like every time someone asks me about a, a number, it's almost put me in the trial and then it feels like a judge is asking me questions. If I answer their wrong, yes. <laughs> I'm going to get punished. <laughs> And uh, there's always so many different data sources and different assumptions. I think you have to really care about the business or have that curiosity. I think also that's why a lot of people in the analytics route, they feel stuck. You see a lot of people transition out of it. I don't see a lot of, say, principal data analysts compared to principal machine learning engineers, right? A lot of data analysts later maybe become, say, program managers, product managers, based on the data you collected. What do you think about the career growth opportunities for analytics versus machine learning? Yeah, I literally don't think that there is a principal data analyst job. I think that just becomes being like a product manager or you just become a data analytics manager where you're not working on analytics anymore, right? Because... There's only such a degree to which you can be really good at like generating dashboards and doing reports, right? And it's much more different than on the engineering side where you can architect much bigger things and you can ship much bigger projects. But on the data analyst side, it's not, I'm not going to pay you 5x more, even if you can generate a Tableau dashboard 5x faster than someone else. I literally don't think people can make that connection in their mind to actually do that sort of thing for someone. And so I definitely think that's a really good point that you bring up. Like it's not like a real kind of career path to be like a principal or a, a staff like data analyst. Instead, they just become like product managers that focus on like higher levels and moving up market in terms of what the customer needs, right? If you're the data analyst, you're finding this data that, okay, the customer needs these things. We're seeing it in the data. You pass that to the product manager. That's the end of your cycle right and so what happens is you just move up market to becoming that product manager where you're just doing that work anyway of the data analyst figuring out that data and then telling the engineers to build these things that then you have to also see through to then go back into the product kind of life cycle and so yeah i guess it's more of a where they have that in pokemon where they, they don't go up until charis charmander doesn't become charizard anymore he just he goes to a separate lateral. like lateral yeah, yeah lateral move, career exactly. move yeah, yeah. yeah also now they're more specific job titles for data scientist, data analyst, for example, analytics engineer or data engineer, like you mentioned. I think a lot of data analysts, because they write so much, so <clears throat> they become analytics engineer. Uh, I think an analytics engineer sounds like a rebranding for BI engineer. Yeah, it does. Yeah, so w what do you think about this? Also, some people say maybe there are fewer data scientists job posts because those jobs are getting more specialized. The people are hiring analytics engineer or data engineer. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of what we were talking about in the beginning. Like it is definitely becoming more specialized. I think that most of the time, I think honestly from 2009 or whenever the data science role was created to like 2019, I think 80% of the data science hires were actually doing data engineering most of the time. And then because no one had built out any of the data infrastructure to actually do it. And now most companies have that knowledge of how to build out that data infrastructure so they can actually hire data scientists and stuff. But at the end of the day, I remember Nextdoor even, they were like a billion dollar company and they literally had one guy maintain the data infrastructure and they had zero data analysts. And they did that for about five years where they just had one person holding up the entire data infrastructure for this wow. company, right? It's just this crazy kind of, stats where you just realize how data engineering was never that much prioritized and now they're like oh wait actually ai is blowing up oh wait yeah. we need like our data in the right format actually metrics really do matter and data quality is mm -hmm. a really big issue <clears throat> that's kind of why you're seeing data engineering just data engineering as a field in general kind of explode because they're realizing more and more what this title is and how they have to prioritize it yeah and in the beginning of the recording you mentioned ai engineers so what's the definition of AI engineer compare, especially what's the difference between AI engineer and ML engineer? 
Yeah. So this is the question of the day and probably the year going forward of what is an actual AI engineer. I feel like it started kind of coming into fruition like middle of last year where they started actually putting out these job titles and people were like kind of very much surprised that this like new kind of subset of data science was kind of blowing up, right? And I still think it's really early. I doubt there's even more than 100 AI engineering jobs out there right now. But from what we've seen, as these AI companies continue to grow, these roles will be becoming more and more like profound. Um, and it just kind of depends on that market. But it's basically this, I think it's almost like a product manager, like AI specialist, someone who just uses ChatGBT a lot, maybe could even be an AI engineer. But all they're doing is kind of building AI products and they're almost like the glue that kind of brings in everyone together to kind of build these AI products. Oh, right? interesting. So it's not like a software engineer building AI products? I don't think so. I think you would call that a just an ML engineer or like a research engineer, mm -hmm. a research scientist as so well. It sounds like AI engineer is not necessarily engineer. It's more like an AI hacker. Yeah, basically, almost like a growth hacker mm -hmm. before they actually had the term for a marketing analyst or something like that. It's kind of like AI hacker, someone who basically understands like prompts, maybe the output of specific prompts, maybe how to tune your prompts as well, or kind of get better responses out of AI than normal people would, and then just implement those in practice as well. And so I do think it's just someone who could like, at this stage, read really good documentation, probably just <laughs> yeah, right, around all the AI stuff because there's so much around yeah. it. Then you have someone who could just be up to date on all the AI things as well and kind of just be really interested in this field and just do basic like API calls at the yeah. very least, right? Because you just need to integrate with API caller. Yeah, exactly. API <laughs> caller. AI API caller, though. <laughs> yeah, okay, so AI engineer is more like a person who uses AI really well, but also has the business acumen and know what to build, and then uh, this thing needs to have impact. So it sounds like this role doesn't really need a lot of data science skills. It doesn't need to know statistics, does I, it? I think, I mean, I even feel like just general data scientists don't even know, need to know that much statistics, really? right? You just kind of need to know the concept of statistics and be like, uh -huh. all right, like I know precision recall and I understand that if we turn this knob up, then everyone's going to get spammed. And if we turn it down, then no one will get emails, right? That's kind of like the basic general knowledge of yeah. stats that you apply. And I think it's the same thing for AI, right? It's all right. Well, if we use AI everywhere or we very specifically curate these prompts, then some other thing is going to happen. And if we change it this other way, then our AI is going to do crazy things that way. So I think it's kind of just someone who understands how to utilize black boxes and understand inputs and outputs and just have general business sense and is probably also a good product manager, right? Because you need engineers to kind of help you build some stuff out or hack on it. Just being able to do all those things is kind of where the current role is at. So that's why I'm also kind of, I'm not sure if this is an actual role that will blow up or not, but a lot of people are pretty bullish on it. If AI is in general, it becomes this huge thing. And so far we're seeing a bunch of startups kind of build out and trying to integrate AI. Mm -hmm. Those guys are all probably just AI engineers, if you think about it, right? Yeah. They're like building the product with AI and they're raising some money versus just doing it at a company and using the company's existing resources to build out like a new product anyway. Yeah. Have you created a guide for um, interview uh, interviews for AI engineers? I have not. We actually don't know that many people who even gone those jobs, I feel like. They're actually highly in demand. So I saw one that was at Anthropic and it was like AI engineer slash prompt librarian. And the pay was like 250K to like 400 TC. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, this is the craziest part. It was like two years of experience, right? Because yeah. there's only been two years of <laughs> right. chat GPT. Oh, okay. So it didn't yeah. have any requirement for how many years they need to be in software engineering? No, not even. I think like basic understanding of Python and being able to code things, right? Yeah. Like you should be able to use an AI to, like we said, right? Call APIs, get responses, integrate with, use JSON, mm -hmm. use a DB and stuff like that. But you don't need to like have crazy amounts of experience there. And I think that was the most interesting kind of like template for that role. Mm -hmm. But we'll see it kind of how it plays out in the future as it becomes more democratized. Yeah. 
So besides AI engineer, and previously we talked about analytics engineer, what are some new roles or job titles in you know, data, AI that are emerging, and what kind of roles are likely to go away? Yeah, I mean, roles that go away, I think, is a better indication than actually asking about new roles at this point because it's so much harder to predict what the new roles might be. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit easier to think about what's going to go extinct. Yeah. Um, I don't attribute to the theory that all these white-collar jobs are going to be gone when AI mm-hmm. replaces us just because they can code. But I do think that becoming a data analyst is going to be a lot easier in the next few years, and that role itself on the day-to-day will shift from someone where if you think that it took, let's say, an hour usually to write a complex SQL query, potentially in that future, it goes down to five minutes. Now, it's not to say that suddenly there's going to be 20x less data analysts, but I do think that the role of the data analyst will change, right, and to adapt until, okay, if you can actually, like, do this query in five minutes now instead of an hour or two hours, what else can you do with your time now to kind of add business value, right? Right. And if you can't think of it, then you're probably going to go extinct. But if you can and you can continue to, like, iterate on your own job and actually provide more value to the business, then I think that's where you'll kind of we'll see kind of like how the role progresses. But I do think the traditional roles of some, like the business intelligence analysts, right? Like if all your job was to make dashboards, then yes, probably in the next 10 years, we won't see you doing that job anymore. But it, that's, I mean, at the end of the day, that's not actually true that your job is just to make dashboards, right? Your job is to make dashboards for executives and make it intuitive for executives, right? For them to actually do their job well. And so as long as they still need that, then uh, the business intelligence analyst will still exist. Yeah, maybe the business intelligence engine, maybe the business intelligence analyst title become data storyteller, data, data storyteller, inter- data interpreter. Yeah, data. At the end of the day, your job is to advise the business, and then dashboard is just a tool. I think when I was a data scientist, like four or five years ago, I was also working on BI because you just have to spend so much time working on that dashboard or writing the SQL. I actually had very little time to think about the story. It's always the last few hours before I do presentations, I have to think through it and tell the story. It's always, oh, how do you compare the data sources, writing the query, build a pipeline. I hope in the future we can spend more time just to understand the business problem and then um, craft our narrative better. Yeah, I think so too. I think most data people would benefit from being in a startup environment more too because it really just shapes your thinking into what matters. And I remember starting like a new job as a new grad and just working on these projects that never see the light of day, right? Because you just... You work on stuff that just is so useless sometimes, but you think that it matters. And then you realize that these people have more experience than you Mm. and that they're telling you what to do because of the fact that they understand this is a good use of your time versus you trying to come up with what you think is the most valuable thing for businesses as well. Yeah, I also recently talked to the CEO of Hacks. It's a collaboration tool for data teams. So his take was that although with all the AI-powered tools, it's going to be easier for data analysts to do their work, for example, but because there are always a lot of follow-up questions from stakeholders, there's a huge backlog of questions, assumptions people want to investigate. So that just means people get to those problems faster. It not necessarily means teams or companies don't need data analysts anymore. Yeah, exactly. I think the end goal is that the data analyst just understands all those questions in the future. And you're going to be a really successful data analyst if you can just predict what those people are going to ask you, right? Because you're essentially just doing their job for them, right? Like the employees that I love working with the most are the ones that when there's a problem, they uh, not only just surface, hey, there's a problem. Right. You should look into it. They say, yeah. hey, there's a problem. Here are three different ways to fix it. A, B, C, which one do you think is the best one? And, mm-hmm. you know, as someone who's, you know, going up their career, like, you got to think about how to, like, actually try to prioritize and fix the problems first. 
yourself because that just takes so much of the headache away. Right. right. Don't go to your manager just to ask a question. Always have your suggestions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why no one told me that when I was <laughs> early <laughs> on my career. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think about the future of data science or careers in data science? Well, I think it's definitely, since we're seeing more structure in data science, right, we're not seeing that crazy growth that we saw much earlier before. I think in 2015, maybe 2013 to 2019, 2020, we were seeing like 30 to 40% growth in data science year over year. That led to a lot of boot camps, if you think about it, General Assembly. I remember there's another hack reactor, stuff like that. And it also led to a lot of new master's programs as well, education programs, undergraduate programs in data science. I don't think we're seeing that kind of growth anymore in data science, to be honest. I think this AI is like an X factor in terms of what that's going to produce down the line because the education part almost always follows the industry having a need, right? Yeah. Like it was always like there needed to be a lot of software engineers for, for hire and they couldn't find any. So they built like these boot camps to basically supply them with new engineers or front end developers, essentially. Same thing could be said of, I think, data science where that already happened. Now we're reaching just a steady state of supply demand, maybe too much supply. And then this AI kind of trend is showing a very interesting kind of new field curve. And I think the people that are going to succeed right now off the bat are going to be the ones that are naturally interested in it. But over time, in the next five years, I would be I would not be surprised if there's like an AI engineering master's degree, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I think there already is, but they just, they like, they fake it. It's AI, but it's actually you learn data science, right? Yeah. They'll say AI product management. It's all about just doing SQL queries and stuff like that. I think in the future, we'll actually have a real potential AI learning stuff around these models. It might not just be like how to build your own model, right. but it might just be interacting with them and how to like how to use, use it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. So if you are interested in data science, the statistics or the business value, the aspect of it, like you mentioned, you can still succeed because you're genuinely interested in that. You don't have to think about other things just because, so, oh, this AI hype, I have to go chase that. But I think it's valuable to just learn a little bit or just watch some YouTube video to see how people build tools with that. And if you are still undecided, I would say maybe consider both and then just be open-minded because I do think we are in the middle of some sort of shift. Yeah, I think so too. I think uh, by now, if you haven't played around with AI, I mean, maybe it's too late because <laughs> it's been around for two years and it's been explosive. But I would say just... There are new developments every single month, and so there could be more and more stuff that kind of comes out that will pique your interest. If you don't feel like it was that exciting right now, or you're like, ah, people only use ChatGPT for dating responses, it's not useful for my life, right? Yeah. That could completely change in the next month with some new release, with some new update, and it could get a lot better or it could be brought into your aspect of life that you're interested in. So I would say it's definitely going to be in the future and coming up more and more often. And I can only imagine it being more ubiquitous right now. I even get kind of mad at my, this is off tangent, but I get mad at <laughs> Google Home and Siri when I realize it's not ChatGPT. Uh -huh. uh, I feel like people get used to asking ChatGPT questions and then when they're suddenly hands-free and they ask their Google Home for something and they're like, the is Google it bad? Home. Yeah, it's horrible, right? <laughs> so Alexa asks, what? Like Google, yeah. you have two different things just put them together, yeah. right? So I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. Well, you're still running a business for a data science interview prep. Are you going to add the AI engineer element? I mean, we'll add it once we understand how that role progresses, but yeah. I don't think it makes sense right now when there's like literally 100 or 200 job postings for it. We're really much just kind of defined by like the market cap of who's hiring and what roles need to be prepped. So I'm definitely keeping a close eye on it. I'm just not fully invested in figuring it out. Because then if I don't do it, then we have to find someone else who has that experience into doing it and actually recruiting for it and hiring for it. 
but it's only been like two years, right? Yeah. So it's, who knows? It's already two years. It's already two <laughs> years. Yeah, it's already two years. That's yeah. true. But like, I don't know uh, what that process kind of looks like. Maybe yeah. I need to go underground and interview at OpenAI. Mm-hmm. Just be like, <laughs> what are you guys asking me? Yeah. But it sounds like there's still a lot of uh, demand from your business perspective, right? Like people are still preparing for data science interviews. Yeah. I don't think data science is going away for a long time. I think it's just reached more of a steady state kind of growth. Yeah. Um, it's not like growing crazy fast. It's just kind of now growing slowly. And I think that's good. Now, I think other aspects of the data science like side, which is supplying all this excess supply, mm-hmm. might be growing like too fast, right? If you think about the number of masters or universities that have released master's degrees in data science and data analytics over the last five years, I would say that's almost like exponential compared to the actual amount of jobs. And so that, I think, is a separate in- issue. If people are coming in expecting there to be like instantly a data science job for them when they graduate, that's not true anymore. Yeah. But the overall market, there's still a lot of data science jobs out there. Okay, cool. So before we wrap up, if people want to uh, try Interview Query or follow you, where can I find you? Yeah, so if you guys want to check out, just type that into a website near you. (laughs) If they want to follow me, uh, I'm on YouTube under Fang, TikTok, all those different channels. I talk about data science, career how to get jobs in data science, interview prep materials, mock interviews, such like that. Do you talk about how to have more charisma? I did. It didn't (laughs) really land with the audience, though. No one could make that connection between charisma (laughs) and doing well on interviews somehow. So maybe I'll try to reframe it a little bit. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I do think, you know, it's always really important to be more charismatic. Cool. (laughs) Um. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun.